Uh, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And let's begin by reading this passage together. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul writes this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Over the years, I've become fascinated with the question, how? I wasn't always this way. It used to be that the question I liked to ask was why. I wanted to know the reason for a thing, the reason for a particular command or course of action. And I suppose I still like to ask this question. In fact, if you ever get a chance to really know me, it's probably a little frustrating uh, because I can expend a lot of time and energy analyzing why one thing ought to be done over another instead of just doing something. Uh, a kind of paralysis by analysis can set in. But now the question I'm really fascinated with, in addition to why, is how. I want to know not just why a thing exists, or why I should do one thing or another, but how. Is there a right way to do it? Or if not a right way, then a best way? And when I stop to think about it, I suppose a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, growing up, I was probably the classic example of the person with book smarts, uh, but who I guess you could say lacked common sense. I don't know that's quite the word I'm looking for because I don't mean that I'm the type of person who makes blatantly idiotic mistakes. Rather, what I mean is that I was the type of person who can learn most of what you'll throw at me in a classroom. I can remember what I learned. I could maybe even anticipate and explain how one concept related to another uh, without much prompting. I had common sense in that respect. I could make connections. But once you took me out of the classroom... I didn't know much of anything about how to simply live everyday life. Basically, I had knowledge, but I didn't know how to apply it. And over the years, I've come to realize that quite often, this is what really counts in life. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't know how to apply it, how to do something with it, then it profits you nothing. Of course, this doesn't mean that why doesn't matter. Take worship, for instance. You can get the how of worship right, meaning you can do the right actions. But if you don't do it for the right reasons, the Bible tells us that God rejects it. That's the message of Isaiah 1 and the Sermon on the Mount. Even still, that said, you can have all the good intentions in the world, but if you don't worship in the right way, if your expression of worship violates or contradicts the character of God, then God is still going to reject it. I mean, just ask Uzzah, right? 
Or to frame it still another way, there are some really useless skills out there, aren't there? Just as there's a lot of trivial knowledge. You need both. You need both the right data. You need the answers to what and why matched with the answers to how. You need both the information and the skill, or whatever you do is going to be completely useless. And so this is where I'm at now. I'm fascinated not just with the question of why, but of how. Is there a right way, a best way to do things? And in a sense, this is where we're at in 1 Corinthians as well. Uh, the subject at the moment is ministry, but most specifically, teaching, the ministry of the word. That can be a ministry directed to the church or to the unbelieving world. It can be ministry in a corporate context like the one that I'm doing right here, right now on a Sunday morning service. Or it can be more of an individual one-on-one -on -one ministry like what you might do sitting down over a cup of coffee with a friend. Or while you're at home with your kids. But whatever it's setting, whatever the context, the subject is ministry. And specifically teaching ministry. And the question is, how does one present the Word of God to others? Again, is there a right way or even a best way? I'd imagine that might sound like sort of a silly question to some of you. If you're anything like me, you may have this immediate, almost instinctive reaction to this question, which has been grained has been ingrained by years of training in postmodern institutions. You go, what do you mean, is there a right way? What kind of a narrow-minded question is that? There's no right way to do anything. There's only your way, and then there's my way. Who cares about how you communicate an idea, so long as it's communicated, right? Well, we're discovering very quickly that the Apostle Paul cared. He certainly believed there was a right way to communicate the Word of God. I'd assume that by this point in our series, most of you are relatively familiar with the context. Paul is writing this letter to address some concerns that have been presented to him by the Corinthians. And we actually haven't covered that part uh, just yet, uh, but Paul is currently in Ephesus. Uh, during his third missionary journey, in fact, if you want to be real specific, it would seem that Paul writes this letter sometime between Acts 19.20 and 21. He had helped found the Corinthian church in Acts 18 towards the end of his second missionary journey, so there's been some time that's passed since Paul has been able to communicate with the Corinthians, since he's been in the region. He's now just a short sea voyage across the Aegean Sea from Corinth, and it would appear that in the interim, uh, of his absence, some issues have arisen in this fledgling young church. Some theological weeds have popped up. To be specific, the Corinthians have some questions about some of Paul's teaching. It would seem that since he's left, they're not quite sure they agree with some of what he's taught them. And so they've written partly to challenge and partly to seek further clarification for his teaching. As Paul assesses these questions, he discerns a root cause for this change in heart, and that's pride. You see, not long after Paul departed Ephesus to return back home at the end of his second missionary journey, a brilliant new preacher by the name of Apollos had visited Corinth. It would appear that Apollos had come to Ephesus shortly after Paul's departure, and there he met a couple of fellow Jews, a couple of fellow believers, 
uh, named Achilla and Priscilla. Achilla and Priscilla had ministered with Paul in Corinth and even worked with Paul since they were tent makers like him. And after Paul left Corinth, they traveled with him to Ephesus. Apollos met these two former Corinthians in Ephesus, and after receiving some instruction from them, he was encouraged to travel on to Corinth and strengthen the brothers there. Unfortunately, as helpful as Apollos intended to be, it doesn't seem as if his, his visit to Corinth was entirely good. And that doesn't appear to be because of anything that Apollos did per se. It just had to do with who the Corinthians were and what their weaknesses were when they came to Christ. You see, the Corinthians were from a culture that was enamored with social status and philosophical wisdom, and it just so happened that Apollos was a really good public speaker. He was an incredibly skilled debater. We learn in Acts 18 that he powerfully refuted his fellow Jews in public while he was ministering there in Corinth. And again, unfortunately, this seems to have had a rather negative effect on the church as a whole. On the one hand, Acts 18 tells us that the brethren were greatly helped by his defense of the faith. It would seem they didn't know the scriptures well enough to refute these attacks from the unbelieving Jews in Corinth. But on the other, according to 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12, Paul is now getting this report from Chloe's people that there are these people going around in Corinth saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Christ. And this seems to be more than just fan clubs where everybody has a favorite teacher. Rather, it would seem that the Corinthians are actually breaking into different camps within the church. It's not that they're at war with each other necessarily, but they're acting as if there are different schools of thought within Christianity, each with its own set of advantages and disadvantages, and they're choosing to align with one camp or another based on which camp they think has the most advantages. It's a kind of religious pluralism, not unlike what they would have practiced uh, before they became Christians, when they worshipped the Greek pantheon, or when they subscribed to one philosophical school over another. They've taken this former way of thinking and they've transferred it into the church. And on the whole, the most popular school appears to be the school of Apollos. Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew, which means he was a Jew that was likely very comfortable with Greek thought and with the Greek way of doing things. And so when he ministered in Corinth, he did so in a way that felt very normal and very comfortable to the believers living in that city. This is leading the vast majority of the church to line up with him. And that's partly where these disputes with Paul's ministry are coming from. Apollos was a man of tremendous eloquence. He appeared very intelligent and sophisticated by Corinthian standards. Paul, on the other hand, adopted a very simple and plain style of communication. And as the Corinthians are adding all this up, they're coming to the conclusion that maybe this is because Paul simply isn't as intelligent or as sophisticated as a man like Apollos. And this in turn is leading them to question the authority of his teaching. It's not that they think that Paul is a false teacher, per se. He just doesn't have the kind of training or intellect as some other Christians, Christians like Apollos, so you can't expect him to keep up to understand how the faith should really be applied. And this is all incredibly ironic, by the way, because when Apollos showed up in Ephesus, the thing that Achilla and Priscilla recognized was that while he was an incredibly gifted speaker, there were still some shortcomings in his doctrine. And they'd actually spend time teaching him and what they had learned from Paul before encouraging him to travel to Corinth. 
So that's the situation. Paul has gotten this letter from Corinth where they're asking him to answer a few questions. And what he's realizing is that before he gets into the answers to these questions, the first thing he needs to address is the root behind these questions, which is their pride. And he does this by defending his ministry. Again, the Corinthians are interpreting the style of Paul's ministry as an indication of his, of his intellect. They think him too stupid or naive to communicate in a sophisticated style. And so before he addresses these other matters, he first defends his ministry and tells them, actually, just so you know, I ministered that way on purpose. That's where we've been since 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17, where Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is defending the style of his ministry. And what we're learning as we move further and further into this discussion is that Paul's style of ministry wasn't just a preference. He actually begins uh, this point by saying back in chapter 1, verse 17, that he ministered the way he did, that he ministered without a sophisticated message or persuasive style of ministry, quote, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The idea is that to adopt this approach to ministry and to adopt anything other than this approach to ministry would actually undermine the gospel. And ever since that point, Paul has been explaining how a sophisticated style of ministry would do just that. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31, Paul explains that he doesn't preach a sophisticated message because God doesn't save according to intellectual sophistication. He saves by power. He says that God actually wanted the gospel to appear foolish to the world. In verses 26-31, to 31, Paul then explains why God has chosen to save in this way. And that's so that God can humble all people through the gospel. In fact, there Paul explains that God doesn't just use a foolish message to save. He uses a foolish people to save. And he points to the Corinthians as proof. The reality is that the Corinthian church was made up of the low in society, the foolish, the ignorant, the weak, the base. And yet they have believed in the gospel whereas the wise and the powerful have not. And Paul explains the reason is not only because a person believes by power instead of wisdom, but because God also means to shame the high and the mighty in the world. Basically, he explains that God has done things upside down. He's saved with a foolish message through a foolish people. And the reason is so that in the end, no one can boast. No one can point to some aspect of their own flesh and say, see, this is why I believe. This is why I was saved. And in the end, this is why Paul preached the way he did. Paul doesn't preach according to worldly wisdom first because of how salvation works. God doesn't save according to anything that a person can boast in, not their wisdom, not their power, not their nobility, nothing. And then second, he preaches this way because of why salvation works. God is seeking to humble a rebellious people so they'll once again rely on the only one in whom they should have confidence, and that's God alone. Basically, Paul says he did it this way because it is uh, not only impossible to save through a clever message, but to even try to do so would undermine God's intent in the gospel. So again, this isn't a preference. Paul doesn't preach this way simply as a matter of choice. No, the reason is theological. Listen, the way he did the ministry, the how, 
the how of his ministry was rooted in the gospel itself, the why. And we come, and as we come now to chapter 2, Paul begins to explain that how question. He taught us the why in chapter 1. Why preaching with words of eloquent wisdom would void the cross of Christ. Now he tells us how this affected the way he ministered the gospel. How he taught the word of God. So, how did he do it? I tell you, that's not only an incredibly relevant question for the Christian, since we're all tasked with this responsibility at one level or another, but it's an incredibly important one, since again, if you get the why right, but you get the how wrong, then there's a sense in which your knowledge is worthless. If I could put it blunt, I've encountered plenty of pastors who would affirm the theological truths that we just discussed up in chapter 1. They agree with the sovereignty of God and salvation, for instance. They would say that God saves by power rather than human wisdom. But then when you examine the way they do ministry, they're actually doing the exact opposite of what Paul does here in chapter 2. They've got the why right, but the how is all wrong. And that's a problem. Because Paul says that he could actually void the cross of Christ by how he ministered the Word of God. Again, we have to understand Paul's method of ministry is not optional. We must adopt the exact same principles that he adopted in his approach to ministry since Paul explains to do otherwise would void the cross of Christ. So how did Paul minister the Word of God? I think we can discover two principles that he employed in this passage. We looked at the first one last week. And that was to declare the cross of Christ alone. We saw this in verses 1 and 2. When Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ in Him crucified. Paul says that because God saves by power instead of wisdom, he preached one message and he preached it one way. That message is the gospel, and that way is simply. He preached simply and without, without ornamentation. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Paul spoke in a monotone voice, or that perhaps he didn't use illustrations to explain his points when he spoke. Rather, the idea is that he didn't try to persuade his audience. He didn't try to convince them, per se. He didn't try to discover what type of evidence they found the most convincing or what aspects about the gospel they found most appealing and then adjust and tailor his message to that. Since to do that would void either the content or the intent of the gospel. It would either win them to something other than Jesus or it would give them something to boast about in their flesh. So instead, he simply tried to explain to them what the cross is and then I think perhaps implored them to believe in it. Again, he declared the cross of Christ alone. And now, principle number two, he depended upon the Spirit of God alone. Again, this is our second principle, and this is our subject for today. Principle number one was declare the cross of Christ alone. Principle number two in Paul's ministry was depend on the Spirit of God alone. So if you want to minister the Word of God like the Apostle Paul, and if you want to, if you want to do it the right way, then you won't only declare the cross of Christ alone, you'll also depend upon the Spirit of God alone. 
Up to this point, we've seen that Paul intentionally stripped down the presentation of his message in order to make the offense of the Messiah stunningly clear to his audience. This only begs the question, but if there's no outward, evident appeal to Christ by the world's standards, then how is anyone going to come to faith? I mean, when Paul was aware that the world would reject the content as foolish, then why would he communicate the gospel this way without any added frills to make it more appealing? And we see the answer here in verses 3 and 4. The reason why Paul preached the cross of Christ alone was because he depended upon the Spirit of God alone. He says, verses 3 and 4, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So what's Paul getting at in this verse? What do I mean when I say that Paul depended on the power of the Spirit alone? Well, we're now headed into a subject that has a lot of confusion surrounding it, and that's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit not only has a fair amount of nuance to it, but that nuance grows out of some very difficult passages to interpret. This means that there's also a good amount of disagreement out there about this doctrine. So if you don't mind, uh, the discussion over the next few minutes is going to get a little technical. And I do that so you can understand how I arrived at my understanding of this verse. So forgive me uh, for my preaching sins. <laughs> If it sounds like I'm just uh, preaching my study notes for the next few minutes, but I want you to be confident that the interpretation I'm adopting here is the right one. Verse 3 is actually the tougher verse to understand in this passage. So we're actually going to begin in verse 4. That's a little bit easier to handle, and I think it unlocks the correct understanding of verse 3 for us. The key phrase in this uh, passage is this last phrase of verse 4. When Paul says that his preaching was in demonstration of the Spirit, and of power. Now note, the phrase, in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that functions as an adjective that's describing Paul's preaching. It describes how Paul preached. A couple of translations translate this phrase with demonstration of the Spirit and power, and I think this carries the sense better. Paul's preaching was accompanied by some sort of demonstration of the Spirit. What does this mean, that Paul's preaching? Now again, think about this that his preaching was accompanied by a demonstration of the Spirit. I think there are two possible ways we could interpret this. Either we could say that Paul's preaching gave proof to the Spirit. Uh, the word that Paul uses here for demonstration literally means proof. So under this interpretation, Paul's preaching would prove the Spirit in some fashion, as if the existence of the Spirit is in question, and Paul's preaching gave evidence to the Spirit's working. And quite obviously, that can't be Paul's intent here. Paul is proclaiming Christ, not the Spirit. Christ crucified is what looks foolish to the world in this context, not the Spirit. The truth of Christ, which Paul proclaims through his preaching, is in question, not the Spirit. So if Paul's preaching is giving evidence of anything here, it's giving evidence to Christ, not the Spirit. Further, if Paul's preaching somehow proved the Spirit, then verse 5 wouldn't make any sense, since Paul would then be the one proving God through his preaching and that most definitely would cause the Corinthians' faith to rest on the wisdom of men, not the power of God. The second way we can interpret this is by saying that Paul's preaching is proven by the Spirit. And this interpretation easily makes the most sense. Paul's 
Preaching contains a message that appears foolish to the world, and he proclaims it in a simplistic way that doesn't appeal to the world's wisdom, meaning he has both the content and the communication working against him. So how are people believing? And it's through a demonstration of the Spirit. It's through the proof provided by the Spirit of God. And this makes sense of verse 5. Paul says he preached this way so that their faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. Obviously, if Paul's preaching is being verified by the Spirit, then this would be the result. The Corinthians would trust in Paul's message because God showed them that they should believe through the Spirit. But what's this proof that he's speaking about? What proof does the Spirit provide in this context? Again, a couple of options uh, seem apparent. One way of reading this is to say that Paul is referring to the internal conviction of the Spirit. Theologically, I think this is where we naturally want to go. We want to read it in, an, in a Romans 8.16 sense, which says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The, this interpretation goes along with the idea that we search the Scriptures and we're convicted by the Spirit that the message of Christ is true. I'll tell you, that's the reading that I'm probably most inclined to take at first blush. There's a couple of problems with that interpretation, though. First, Paul in his preaching, Paul in his preaching is the, again, I know this is technical, but bear with me here. Paul in his preaching is the noun attached to the adjective in this sentence, not the Corinthians in the belief. That difference is subtle, but it's important. Paul's not saying that their belief was accompanied by a demonstration of the Spirit, which would imply that there's some sort of internal conviction going on. Rather, he's saying his preaching was accompanied with a demonstration of the Spirit, which implies that there was some sort of external display that others could witness in association with his preaching. Second, in terms of the problems with this position, is it would imply a level of intellectual assent. It says the Corinthians were convicted by the Spirit that the gospel is true, and so they believed. That implies an understanding of the wisdom of the cross on some level. And that's not Paul's point here in this context. Not yet. As Paul speaks about his preaching, his point is that it was without wisdom. That it was contrary to human understanding. So it simply wouldn't make sense that Paul would begin talking about internal conviction here. Now, this is not to say that there is not an internal conviction of the Spirit when someone comes to believe. There most definitely is. I'm just saying that Paul's not talking about it here. In fact, Paul will begin to discuss the internal conviction of the Spirit in verse 6. But if you note, he begins that section by saying, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. He makes a contrast between verses 1 through 5 and verse 6 with this yet. The idea is that he's not addressing that subject right now. He's getting to it. So again, what does this mean, this proof of the Spirit? Well, the second way to read this is to say that Paul is referring to some external, miraculous display of the Spirit that accompanied his preaching. And this makes the most sense for many of the same reasons that internal conviction doesn't. But most simply, this interpretation most easily fits with the idea of not wisdom, but power. The word for power here, though not always associated with miracles, often is associated with miracles in the New Testament. In fact, in some contexts, it's simply translated miracles. And given its association with the demonstration of the Spirit, this would seem to make the most sense of this word. With Paul's preaching, there was a miraculous 
visible display of the Holy Spirit's power, which took place in the presence of those who heard his message, in order to give evidence of the fact that what Paul was saying was true. Now, when I say this, you're probably thinking, so you're talking about the apostolic gifts, right? You know, making the lame walk, casting out demons, resurrecting the dead. Paul did these things as he preached to verify his message. And I think the answer to that question is, sort of. I think there's a good chance that's partly what Paul's referring to. You go to 2 Corinthians 12, 11, for instance, and as Paul defends his ministry to the Corinthians there, he notes, and I quote, he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So that seems to be evidence to the fact that Paul's preaching was accompanied by some kind of miraculous power while he was in Corinth, and that power was meant to give evidence to the authority of his message. You look here at the beginning of verse 3, and Paul begins this verse with that word kago that I told you about last week. Kago is a combination of the Greek word and, which is kai, and I, which is ego, and the I there is emphatic. He's saying, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. He wants to draw attention to the fact that he was in weakness and in fear and in trembling. The word for weakness here is asthenia in the Greek. Asthenia is an antonym for the word used for power, dunamis, in verse 4. They're opposites. There are all kinds of ways that we can interpret this word. Some say that Paul showed up in Corinth with his tail between his legs after being laughed at in Athens, and the word points to his timidity, his fear, when he preached in Corinth. I think that's kind of a silly option, personally. I mean, does this context act at all like Paul is concerned about being considered foolish by the people he preached to? Uh, you go back to Acts 18.6 and read how Paul shook out his garment before the Jews in, in Corinth who rejected the gospel and declared, Your blood be on your own heads, I am clean, for now I will go to the Gentiles. No, I don't think that Paul came to Corinth intimidated. Now you might say, but what about this idea of fear and trembling in this verse? Doesn't that show that Paul was afraid when he showed up in Corinth? Not really. When you look up uh, the use of that phrase in the rest of the New Testament, Paul uses that phrase. It's usually a fear and trembling. It's, a, it's in association with uh, his fear of God. Paul's referencing his conduct before God as he obediently obeyed the Lord by faith, faithfully proclaiming the gospel in spite of the rejection he would receive here. He isn't talking about being afraid of the Corinthians. Others say he's referring to some kind of physical weakness on his part. That's certainly possible. There's some indication that Paul suffered from an ongoing physical ailment of his eyes. So maybe he's talking about that. Contextually, I think the most likely interpretation is that Paul is simply referring to his style of communication once again. He's saying, I didn't come with this powerful presentation. I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. Instead, I came to you with a very simple declaration, and I was with you in weakness. Not only does that fit what he says in verse 4, where he talks about his speech and his message not being implausible words of wisdom, but I think it also makes sense, given that Paul's whole point is that he made the intentional choice to be this way, to be weak. That makes sense if he's talking to his presentation. It doesn't make sense if he's talking about his physical appearance. Again, he's defending his ministry here, and he's drawing attention to himself with this cargo and I. He wants them to look at how he ministered to them when he was with them. But regardless of the specific meaning, the point is still basically the same. There was a strong contrast between Paul and this demonstration of the Spirit. Paul looked 
very weak. In one way or another, he seemed very insignificant. He appeared to be of no account. And yet his message was displayed by this tremendous display of power, which was wrought by the Holy Spirit. I think you can certainly see how this would work if Paul's preaching was accompanied by the signs, wonders, and mighty works that accompanied apostleship. Here's this uh, physically unremarkable man, perhaps even a man suffering some, from some sort of severe affliction, and he's very plainly proclaiming a message that seems completely ridiculous, philosophically. And so you're about to just write him off entirely, and then he walks over to a demon-possessed man and casts out a demon. Now, that's going to give you some pause to consider what he has to say, because it's definitely coming with a kind of authority. Only it's not the man that you're impressed with there, right? Do you see how all this would work to Paul's point in verse 5 when he says that he did it this way so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men but in the power of God? If Paul is personally unimpressive, but is accompanied by this spiritual power that testifies to the truth of his message, then a person isn't going to walk away either confusing the message or thinking that they believe because of their cleverness. No, they believed because the power of God testified to what Paul said. I think we have to leave room for that kind of meaning in this statement. However, that said, I also think it likely that Paul has another concept in mind here as well. And that's the spiritual gifts that accompany his preaching when a person believed. Again, keep in mind that the Corinthians were an incredibly gifted church spiritually. And keep in mind as well that in the course of this discussion, Paul said that he was incredibly thankful that he didn't baptize many of them so that people wouldn't go around saying that they were baptized in the name of Paul. Again, Paul made the intentional choice not to baptize people. Isn't that strange? Why would he do that? I believe the most likely reason is because Paul didn't want the Corinthians to think that the sign gifts, which seem to have often accompanied baptism at this time in church history, he didn't want them thinking that those came from him. Again, he wanted their faith to rest on the power of God, not in any human instrument. And so I think it likely that Paul preached and then he allowed other people to do the baptizing. Maybe someone, you know, like a new convert like Crispus, who was the ruler of the Corinthian synagogue before he believed, and who Paul did baptize. And he did this so that no one would think that it was Paul who distributed those gifts. Again, he wanted their faith to rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In all honesty, just, just in light of the context of this passage, in light of what seems to be in the mind of the Corinthians when Paul writes, I think this is the more likely reference. Paul is telling the Corinthians, my message was unremarkable. But don't you remember its effect? I did it that way. So that when you believed, you'd know that it wasn't me that did it. I didn't make you a Christian. God did. I was thinking about how this uh, worked in my own testimony earlier this week. I was uh, talking with someone about religious conversions, meaning uh, the conversion of religious people. And I was trying to explain how God is able to make a person who is externally righteous still comprehend their sinfulness through the internal conviction of the Spirit. And as we were talking about this, I started explaining my own conversion. You see, when I was saved, 
I wasn't an especially sinful person externally. And yet, as I read the scriptures, I knew internally that I hadn't repented in the way that Jesus demanded. No one was telling me that. No one was saying, you know, you need to repent. You're a sinner. You need to turn around. No, I felt the weight of that conviction as I read the word of God. In fact, it's notable that in the conversation that God used to save me, the other person wasn't even trying to save me. Uh, We were just out for some late night pancakes. And she actually thought she was talking to a Christian. We were talking about what it meant to follow God. She was challenging me to do what the Bible says. And internally, I was on fire. Because I was realizing more and more that I wasn't a Christian. I would say I became a Christian later that evening. And in retrospect, it largely came apart from any human efforts at persuading me to become a Christian. Some Gideons handed me a Bible. And then a couple years later, my friend told me I needed to obey the word of God. There weren't any clever arguments, no attempts to persuade me as to why I should become a Christian. Again, even the one who closed the deal, so to speak, she was completely oblivious to the fact that I wasn't a Christian. She thought she was talking to a brother. And yet here I now stand before you today, not only a Christian, but even a teacher in the church. When I look back on my conversion, you know what I think? I think God did it. He was working on my soul through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's simply no other explanation. In other words, that very simple presentation of the gospel, I mean, again, really it all started with a Gideon simply handing me a Bible. That very simple presentation brought about the exact result that Paul is describing here. Now, again, I don't think that's the exact concept that Paul is talking about here. I don't think he's necessarily referring to the internal witness of the Spirit. But the point is still that he allowed the Spirit to provide evidence to his message. And he did this so that when a person believed, their faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, this is how you avoid emptying the cross of its power. You don't just declare the cross of Christ alone. You also depend upon the power of the Spirit alone. So what does this look like practically? After all, if if how I'm interpreting this passage is right, then there's obviously some differences between how Paul would have done this and how you and I are going to do this, right? After all, I'd argue that we probably shouldn't see these uh, same visible manifestations of the Spirit in the church today. So how is this is going to change things, right? Well, not necessarily. No, maybe you shouldn't expect the Spirit to verify your message with the same kind of external expressions of power like what you see in the book of Acts. I mean, those miracles, after all, again, were signs of Paul's apostleship, right? To some degree, even the miraculous gifts received by The hearers, I think there's a very strong New Testament case to be made that these actually pointed to the authority of the apostles as much as anything else. So no, I don't think that you should expect some external manifestation of the Spirit uh, like what we see in this passage. But that doesn't really change the principle. The principle is still the same. What's the right way to present the Word of God? First, you declare the message. You declare the cross of Christ. And then second, after that, you allow the Spirit to bear witness to that message. 
This is partly why I bring up this whole issue of the internal witness of the Spirit, even though I don't think that's the demonstration of the Spirit that Paul's talking about here. It may not be the demonstration of the Spirit that Paul is thinking of in this text, and yet it's still a completely legitimate demonstration of the Spirit. Again, next week we'll actually get into this in our next passage. Paul is going to change subjects and he's going to discuss how the Spirit does bear witness to the testimony of the Gospel. So I don't think we should discount this as an option. We wait for the Spirit to bear witness to our message. Again, what does this look like practically? I think it can be summarized in two points. The first is this. Number one, state, don't manipulate. State, don't manipulate. This goes back to our point last week, which makes sense because Paul's saying, this is how I lived that point out, right? You depend on the Spirit by declaring the gospel without necessarily trying to persuade or pressure someone into a decision. And again, that doesn't mean that you don't answer people's questions or that you don't even implore people to believe. I I said this in passing last week, but I'll just say it again. You can answer people's questions. You can even implore them to believe. I I can think of several New Testament examples where the speaker exhorts his readers to believe with great urgency and force. But I think we can understand that there's a difference between explanation and persuasion between exhortation and manipulation. I was thinking about this just this week as I was talking with one of my kids about the gospel. And by the way, I asked them if I could use this illustration. They said it was fine. Um, but they were, they were explaining their interest in becoming a Christian. And so I sat down with them and I spent some time answering some of their questions. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't ask them, do you want to become a Christian right now? I didn't say, let's ask God for forgiveness so you can become a Christian right this instant. And do you know why I didn't do that? It's because I know it's more than possible for me to manipulate my children into doing something like that. After all, children have an innate desire to please their parents, so it's not hard to get them to do that sort of thing, but for all the wrong reasons. The problem is that what's needed for my child's salvation is something that I can't provide. Their salvation depends on more than the mere utterance of a few words. It depends, rather, on the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. They must be born again. And if I lead them through that kind of a prayer, before that happens... Not only are they going to be confused about their status before God, but I will be as well. We'll both wonder, did they say that prayer because they really believed, or was it simply because I pressured them to make that kind of a confession? We've seen that happen in the church plenty of times, haven't we? A child is pressured to make a decision and then they're given a card with a date on it and they're told, now don't question your salvation. You ask God for forgiveness on this date. And when this happens, they're actually being told very subtly to put their trust in men rather than in the power of God. They're to believe in their salvation based on the witness of the person who, quote, led them to the Lord. When those doubts creep up and they start to wonder, was that commitment real? They pull out the card and they say, I guess so because my Sunday school teacher said it was real. And guys, I should know because that's what happened to me many years before I was out eating pancakes with my friend. 
and the Lord miraculously opened my eyes. I don't want that for my kids. I want what Paul wants here. I want their faith resting, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't want them to think that they're a Christian because dad says they're a Christian. I want them to think that they're a Christian because the Holy Spirit says they're a Christian, because God says they're a Christian. So do you know what I told my child? Uh, The reason why they came to me, the reason why they're asking these questions is because they're hesitating uh, for a couple of different reasons. They, they are interested in the faith, but they understand uh, the cost. And honestly, uh, they have some pretty good reasons to hesitate. Uh, that basically, they understand the cost of discipleship. So when they came to me, I didn't try to sweep those concerns under the rug, uh, tell them that, uh, you know, that they're really not that big of a deal and, and gives them some false sense of security. Tell them, oh, that's not that. It'll, you know, it'll happen. It'll be easy. It's not as bad as what you think to try to persuade them to say, okay, I'm a Christian. I didn't even try to give them all these assurances of how God would take care of them. And the reason is because in our household, they already know that answer. We've said it plenty of times in other contexts. Actually, I sort of went the opposite direction. I told them, those are some pretty legitimate concerns. Sounds like you get it. There are a lot of things to give up if you want to be a Christian. A lot of things you probably love. And then I told them, but if you're serious about becoming a Christian, then I'll tell you where you can start. You can start by praying to God to give you the faith you need to make that decision. And I explained to them how God promises to answer that prayer in the Scripture. In short, I pointed them to God as a source of their faith. And I did that Because not only do I think it is necessary, not only do I think that that's the direction the Scripture actually gives us in in a situation like this, but because I'm literally unable to produce that faith for them. That was what was staring me in the face. Like, they're asking these questions, and I I want them to believe, and yet I'm realizing I cannot produce in them what they need. And so I recognized that, and I also did it because... I want it to be so that when they come to salvation, they'll recognize God did it. Dad Dad didn't convince me. He didn't, quote, lead me to faith. No, God made me alive by the power of the Spirit. That's what I want them to say. I did it because I don't want their faith to rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Can you maybe get a feel for what I'm saying here? I tell you, it takes discipline. Listen, there's a reason why kids are told to pray a prayer and sign a card before they're born again. There's a reason why Baptist churches will sometimes play stanza after stanza of a hymn, right, after the service, just waiting for someone to come up. And it all comes out of the great love that we have for other people. I think of Paul in Romans 9, when he says that he could almost wish himself a curse for the sake of his brethren. We often feel such a great love for the people that we witness to, and we're so eager to see them saved. And we kind of rush the process along. But we must be careful not to be so selfish that out of a desire to comfort our own fears and our own anxieties for others, that we give them some measure of false assurance before they're ready. Not only do we actually hinder their salvation by making the gospel confusing when we do that, but we actually rob them of the confidence that comes when their salvation is so clearly wrought by God. Once again, this is the first way you express dependence on the Spirit practically. You state, but you don't manipulate. The second point, 
I add more for clarity's sake than due to anything found in this passage. And that's to confront, don't repel. Confront, don't repel. Dependence on the Spirit does not mean a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism. But it does mean that as you proclaim the cross of Christ, you make sure that your audience doesn't leave with anything other than the cross of Christ. Contrary to how these verses might be used, they are not saying Paul wouldn't adjust how he presented the gospel based on who he was speaking to. We'll see this later on in 1 Corinthians. Paul would actually intentionally adjust his presentation of the gospel in order to fit his audience. For example, 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, he writes, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Clearly, Paul would adjust his approach based on his audience. But, but contrary to how those verses are so often taken, Paul did not adjust his message to make it more palatable or appealing as he was speaking to people. Quite the opposite. Here Paul is telling the Corinthians he went out of his way not to give them what they wanted. So how does this work? How did Paul adjust? Paul adjusted to make sure that the offense of Christ and Christ alone was loud and clear. And this can cut two ways. On the one hand, we can strive to make the cross more appealing than uh, what it is uh, by the world's standards. Again, we realize that the person is offended by the foolishness of the cross, so we try to make it wise. Or we realize that a person is offended by the justice of the cross, so we try to make it not quite as harsh by emphasizing the love of God. Paul didn't do that. He didn't make the cross easy. He made it hard. He went for the jugular. The gospel is about restoring rebellious sinners back into a humble, worshipful relationship with God. The gospel requires complete faith, complete submission, complete abandonment of self out of a superior estimation of Christ. And Paul preached that way. When Paul was done talking with you, he made sure that you could only come to Christ by submitting to him completely. It was unconditional surrender. Christ and Christ alone was going to be the only cause of your hope and joy. But on the other hand, we can also strive to make the cross more offensive by the world's standards than what it really is. That's also a mistake. Again, this is something uh, that we'll encounter as we get to 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, more than what we see here in 1 Corinthians 2, but it's probably at least worth noting right now, Paul would make sure so as to not add offense to the cross. How this worked practically was that Paul was not only aware of how the packaging of his message might appeal to his audience, he was also aware of how it might offend. And he was careful not only to avoid making his message more appealing than what it really was, but more offensive as well. For example, Jews tend to perceive uh, the liberty of the gospel as lawlessness and sin because Christians didn't keep the law of Moses. Well, the cross isn't about that either. 
Far from it, right? The cross is about repentance from sin and obedience to God. So Paul would live under the law while with Jews in order to make sure that his lifestyle was not the cause of their offense. But then when he was among the Gentiles, he tended to live like a Gentile so they wouldn't think that belief in Christ required obedience to the law. That's his point in 1 Corinthians 9. And the overall idea is that Paul, is that when Paul was done talking to you, he made sure that Christ in Christ alone was the cause for the offense. This is what dependence on the Spirit and gospel proclamation looks like. It doesn't mean unthinkingly proclaiming the gospel the same way to all people without consideration of who you're talking to. Not that God can, can't use that. He can. It's just not optimal. What it does mean is making sure that your audience leaves with nothing but Christ. It means that we present Christ in such a way that when the conversation is over, the cross is the only thing still in focus. Everything else is faded into the background. There's no other reason for boasting, no other reason for hope, but also no other reason for offense. So again, what does dependence on the Spirit look like practically? It means you confront, but you don't repel. Simply stating the truth should not be confused with trying to add offense. By saying we declare the cross, we're not saying we're trying to keep people out of the kingdom of heaven. We're saying we just shouldn't try to persuade or manipulate them into it. Friends, this is the right way to minister the word of God, the right way to share the gospel. You declare the cross of Christ alone, and you depend on the Spirit of God alone. And again, what does it mean practically? To depend on the Spirit, first you state the truth without manipulation. And then second, you confront people with the truth without adding offense to it. And of course, I think we can safely conclude that all of this means that we should pray as well, right? If faith comes by the power of God through the Spirit of God, then we should not only preach the gospel, then we should pray for faith as well. So that's what we're going to do as we close this morning. We're going to pray that God would make our ministries, in whatever shape they take, fruitful. Let's pray.